0: Let's just pray before we begin. Lord God in heaven, through your word we ask that you would refresh our soul, that you would make us wise in your eyes, that you would give us great joy in our heart, that you would give us light in our eyes, that you would make this word more precious to us than gold. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Pretty much every day for the last few weeks, uh, I've heard this song by Little Mix. I don't think I'm Little Mix's target demographic. That's more 13 year old girl than 31 year old bloke. But I love it. I've got to admit it. it. It's called Only You. Hands up if you remember Little Mix. They won the X Factor... Jason, that was a sneaky one at the back. They won the X Factor back in 2011. I've had four number ones since then, surprisingly. And and the lyrics to the chorus are going to come up on the screen. And we're going to have the joy of also hearing that chorus. Beat went wild. (laughs) Little mix, eh? Isn't that an interesting song though? We can keep the words up on the screen. It's a song about relationships. It starts off with the classic fairy tale opener, doesn't it? They used to have everything. And then everything went wrong. And the only way to fix it is to get back together. To go back to the start. To go back to what we once had. Once upon a time. We had it all. I think that song speaks to something that we can all feel. Looking back to the past, thinking that they were the glory days, and somewhere down the line, something went wrong. Whether it's looking back to school days, or single days, or kid-free days, or work days, or healthy days... We can all look back and we can imagine that life was better way back when. Once upon a time we had it all and somewhere down the line we went and lost it. Well the Bible's not a fairy story. It doesn't start with once upon a time. Genesis 2 is not a fairy story. But Genesis 2 is the chapter in the Bible that tells us about when humanity had it all. Genesis 2 is the chapter before we went and lost it. Genesis 2 shows us what life was like before sin. What life in a world without sin looked like. And the whole of Genesis 2 is about three different relationships and how they functioned in a world without sin. The first is the relationship between man and creation. The second is the relationship between man and God. And the third is the relationship between man and woman. But, but first of all, the question is, what is Genesis 2? But because last week we heard from Genesis 1, and this seems a little bit similar. S- some people actually say it's a second creation account, uh, a retelling of Genesis 1. But I don't think that's accurate. I think what it is, is it's a perspective change. Verse 4 shows us that, if you have your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Those first five words, this is the account of, is how the author of Genesis divides up the whole book. He says that 11 times in all. Each time, he signals the start of a new section, each time outlining some family history. In chapter 5, he says it: this is the written account of Adam's family line. In chapter 6, this is the account of Noah and his family. In chapter 10, it's the account of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, Terah, Abraham's father. Chapter 25, Ishmael and Isaac. Chapter 36, Esau. And finally, chapter 37, Jacob. Well, here in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of, firstly shows us that this section of Scripture is presented as true history. This is as true history as the rest of Genesis. There's no difference between them. And it also shows us that this next section is linked to but it's definitely separate from chapter 1. It is, as I said, a change of perspective on creation. It's not a retelling. It's not a continuation. See how the first half of the verse says the heavens and the earth, while the second half says the earth and the heavens? The order changes. That's significant. Genesis chapter 1 is about the heavens and the earth It's been using a wide-angled lens to show us the creation of the entire cosmos by the creator God. But Genesis 2 changes perspective. It shifts from the heavens and the earth to the earth and the heavens. It it zooms right in. It, It zooms into the earth itself. In fact, it zooms into the east. It zooms in to a place called Eden And it zooms in to a garden. And the first thing we see in Genesis 2 in that garden is the perfect before sin relationship between man and creation. Let me read verse 5 and 6. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. There's something missing there, isn't there? There's no worker. God has made the world, but there's nobody to tend to it, to care for it, to rule it. Of course, God himself could have done all of those things, but he's clearly decided that he's going to pass that responsibility on to somebody else. He's going to have a representative on the ground. And so in verse 8, God creates a man to fulfill this role. Let me read verse 8. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The man is created from the ground to take care of the ground. God directly breathes life into him. He becomes alive, and he's placed, as we see, in Eden, which is the garden planted by God himself. Now, this garden is something else. I don't know if you've got a garden on your street that you're particularly jealous of. Maybe your garden is the garden that everybody else is jealous of. The the closest I get to a nice garden like that is on the television when Chelsea Flower Show is on. My granddad is a lifetime member of the Royal Horticultural Society. He, he, he likes to tell the story of how he started when he was 15 as an apprentice gardener in a park in Glasgow and eventually became a director of the parks in Glasgow. But his garden was actually in a park, it was a brand new park. And when they built the house, they said to him, You go and you take the stakes and you set out your garden. <laughs> That's not the kind of thing that you want to say to a Scotsman. (laughs) He walked until he got tired, (laughs) and he sat at the stake in one corner and in the other corner. And, And my memory of going to his house growing up is of this incredible garden that was vast, that had three different sections and a nursery and conifers that, to my tiny eyes, were as big as a tree could ever be. Well, this garden is better than any garden on your street, even if it is yours. Better than any garden that you've seen on Chelsea. Even better than my granda's. Obviously because it's been planted by God himself. And in verse 9 to 14 we have a description of it. Let's run through that. Verse 9 shows shows us that the garden is beautiful but it is also bountiful. The trees in it are lovely to look at but they're also delicious to eat from. And in the very middle of these beautiful, bountiful trees are two particular trees, one called the tree of life, and the other called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we see that from Eden, a river flowed that went into four directions, rivers that water and irrigate and bring life to the whole world everywhere. They're called the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And the lands that these rivers flow through, the lands that these rivers have brought life to, are full of treasure, gold, onyx, which is a precious stone, and an, an aromatic resin, which doesn't sound that great, does it? But, but it's a little bit like myrrh, bedelium. Eden is a place of life that is spilling out and overflowing across the whole of God's creation. And in verse 15, we get that summary of the man's role. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Isn't this all reflective of what we've already seen back in chapter 1, verse 28 and 29? There, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Man's relationship to creation is as a ruler, as God's vice regent, God's man on the ground who came from the ground. But it's important to remember that man's rule is only reflective of God's rule. That's why he's to work and take care of creation. He's to keep the garden under control and cared for on behalf of God. I have to give a very brief mention here to the fact that in this pre-sin, before-sin, perfect word, man still has a job, Work was not a product of the fall. Work did change after sin, but it has always been around. Life in paradise wasn't like an all-inclusive holiday, spent on sun lounges drinking bottomless pina coladas. There was a job to do. We were told last week that because we are made in the image of God, we reflect the work of God by ruling over creation and caring for it. That's what the relationship between man and creation look like before sin. Secondly, we see the perfect before sin relationship between man and the Lord God. In Genesis chapter 2, that, that relationship centers on verse 16 and 17. Let's, let's look down at those verses and I'll read them to us again. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Man has got immense freedom, almost total freedom. Think about all of the creation that we've looked at. In Genesis 1 and so far in Genesis 2. In fact, if it's on another page of your Bible, flick back one. Look across all of that. God says, enjoy it all. Take from it all. But there is one command. Have everything in all of creation, including the tree of life itself. Now, the tree of life... (laughs) Does what it says in the tin. If you ate from this tree, you would live. It's not a magic tree given some kind of superhero power, nor is the fruit mega nutritious, like eating a piece is the equivalent of having ten thousand barocas. God has ordained that this tree is the tree of life. Eating from it, by faith, grants you life from God. And Adam had the opportunity of ongoing life through eating. The fruit of that tree. He's able to enjoy all of God's creation, but he can't eat from the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the only thing that Adam cannot partake from. He's forbidden from eating from it, and he's clearly outlined the consequences if he does. We're going to come back to this tree next week and the week after, But briefly, God commands Adam to obey and believe his word. To obey the command and not eat from the tree. And to believe that death would be the result of disobeying. And therefore he should obey. God here, in this perfect paradise, puts Adam on probation. If Adam obeys God's command, that's to say, if Adam does not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then he will have life. But if Adam disobeys God's command, if Adam does eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he will die. The relationship between God and man hinges on Adam's obedience and belief. And God really wants this relationship with Adam. And that's really clear once you see the names used of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Just look back at Genesis 1 briefly. What name is used again and again for the Creator? 35 times it's always the same. God, God, God god but then look to genesis chapter 2 verse 4 that name changes what is the name the lord god and that name the lord god continues 20 more times through the rest of genesis chapter 2 and on into genesis chapter 3 in genesis chapter 2 verse 4 the the perspective shifts and so does the name used of god the name of God given in Genesis chapter 1 is different from the name used in chapter 2 to show that the all-powerful God who created the universe is also the personal God who wants a relationship with humanity. Uh, one commentator, Kenneth Matthews, described it far better than I could. The words will be behind me on the screen. Elohim, that is God, in Genesis chapter 1, is appropriate name for the majestic portrayal of God as creator of the universe since it properly indicates omnipotent deity whereas Yahweh, that's Lord, Genesis 2 is the name commonly associated with the covenant relationship between the deity and his people Israel. The combination shows that Yahweh, the Lord of his people is in fact the all-wise and powerful Elohim creator. Before sin, man's relationship with God was a personal, obedient, trusting relationship. And finally, in chapter two, we see the perfect before sin relationship between man and woman. It's perhaps surprising that the pinnacle of this chapter, the climax of it, revolves around the relationship between man and woman. Verse 8 begins very starkly, doesn't it? We've heard God say it is good so often in Genesis chapter 1 that it's jarring to hear him suddenly say it is not good for man to be alone. This doesn't simply mean that man is lonely or that man's in need of a bit of company. It means that man is not whole he's not complete. It means that man can't carry out his task of working and caring for and subduing and ruling and filling the earth. He can't do any of those things on his own. So God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, That word helper, firstly, it means that Adam really did need help. He literally couldn't fulfill the job on his own. It's not that Adam is one man trying to do a two-man job and he might be able to manage. He's one man trying to do a one-man, one-woman job. He can't do it. Secondly, the word helper there, that word is used 19 times outside of this passage across the Old Testament. Guess who it's used of 16 of those times? the Lord God himself. Here's a sample. Psalm 33 verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Now it's clear, isn't it, when we read that, that the Lord isn't just a little assistant on the side. But sometimes that's how we can be in danger of interpreting that word in Genesis chapter 2. But no. The Lord is strong and powerful. Without his help, there will be failure. And that's just like the help that the woman will bring. Strong and powerful and essential to the task. The word suitable literally means a match. God is saying, I'll make a match for the man. Someone who's like him. Someone who's right for him. So so we see that that it may be that that match is found amongst the animals. We see in verse 19 that the animals, just like Adam, were made out of the ground. And we saw back in chapter 1, verse 29, that they also have the breath of life. Sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Could it be an animal, the helper? So God brings the animals one by one before Adam. Adam names them. Naming is an aspect of ruling Remember in chapter 1, God gave names to the day and the night and the sky, but God has reserved the right to name the animals. He's given those naming rights to Adam, to allow him to begin to fulfill his vice regency. But as the animals go by one by one, there's no match, thankfully. None is right for him. So in verse 21, this is what we read. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. God puts the man under anesthetic. He cuts him open, he extracts one of his ribs and then closes up the wound. He he then takes the rib and he forms a woman. She's not made from the ground. She's made from the man. And God brings her, like her father, on a wedding day to the man. The man's response, the first recorded words a human ever speaks, it's a love song, A sonnet. Bounding praise for his new wife. Adam says, This is now bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. It's as if he's been playing a really long but really important game of snap. (laughs) He's had the card in his hand for ages. Every animal that's paraded past, he's been itching to throw it down. No, that's not right. That's not right. And finally. He sees the woman, his wife, snap, bone, bone, flesh, flesh. She's the one for me. We're the same. Genesis 1 and 2 bring out both the equality and the difference between the man and the woman. Last week, we saw that both male and female were created in God's image, Both have inherent, God-given value and worth. Tonight we've seen the essential role that woman plays in the creation command of God. It cannot be done without her. She's a match for the man and she's of the same substance as the man. This is what Matthew Henry, a Puritan writer, said speaking of the making of the woman. He says this, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And while there's equality, there's also some difference outlined too. Man is made first, not woman. The woman is made to help man. It's not the other way around. The man is not made to help the woman. The man names woman, which shows him again fulfilling a role of headship. And in the New Testament, we see that Paul uses this passage in particular to outline more fully the leadership role of man in the home and in the church. Genesis 2 shows us the relationship between man and woman that is totally equal, yet clearly fulfilling different roles. And in Genesis 2, verse 24, the author makes it clear that this union of the first man and woman by God is the basis on which all marriage takes place. In marriage, a man leaves his father and mother and then unites, or as some of you may remember the AV, cleaves to, clings to his wife. They become an inseparable unit, a partnership, equal but different. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 25, we see for one fleeting moment, perfect life in paradise. Adam, his wife, Completely sinless. Innocent. Naked. Unashamed. Once upon a time, we had it all. What was life like before sin? Genesis 2 gives us a glimpse. It revolved around perfect relationships. A perfect before-sin relationship between man and creation. A perfect before-sin relationship between man and God. And a perfect before-sin relationship between man and woman. But somewhere down the line, we went and lost it. The people who first read this book knew that. They live in the same world that we do. We know that life isn't like that now. Seemingly the, seemingly the most trivial of these relationships is our relationship with creation. At the end of August, I came back from holiday. We've been away for about two and a half weeks. And, and as I got out of the car, I just thought, oh, guess I'm going to be spending the weekend doing the garden. <laughs> I got out of the car. I could barely open the, he- uh, open the gate because the hedge had somehow intertwined with the lock the flowers that had been blooming before because we'd watered them every night in the heat, after a couple of weeks away, <laughs> were totally shrivelled up. There was a conifer, a cutting from my granddad's perfect garden in Glasgow, that had grown up from a little, uh, from one little uh, taking from that conifer, that we'd been looking after for about five years, and you flicked it, and it just shook, and all the leaves just came off. We let William play out in the back garden, and we lost him in the grass. Don't know where he's gone. But that's just a visual picture of what all of our relationships are like, aren't they? We exploit God's creation for our own end. We don't rule over it. We don't work it. We don't care for it. We pollute it. We destroy it. And we haven't subdued it. You've seen her, uh, Storm Florence this week. And we all know that relationships between man and woman are broken. They don't function with equality and difference. Both sexes try and dominate, try to get ahead. That love song feels miles away from my everyday experience of life. And we know most of all that our relationship with God is not one of obedience and trust. We inherently disobey and mistrust him. We know clearly, and most especially after looking at Genesis 2, that we don't live in a before-sin world. We very much live in an after-sin world. We're going to see all of that played out next week. The relationship between man and creation, between man and God, between man and woman, the creation order that was clearly outlined by God, totally reversed, and therefore everything totally destroyed. But we're given Genesis 2 to show us what life was once like. To show us how God created the world. The world is broken now, but that's because of our sin, not because of God's design. And God set about to ensure that all of those relationships would be repaired. Not that we would just go back to the start. Genesis 2 is not just a glimpse of the past but it's also a sneak peek into the future. Of course, the first relationship that needs to be repaired and reconciled is the one between man and God. And that's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He perfectly obeyed and trusted God. He did what we couldn't do. And he died in our place so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. In Romans 5, verse 10, Paul says this. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Reconciliation brought back into relationship with God. That relationship that we had, that we lost, that we can have now, and we will have ultimately one day in the future. And the reason why that climactic relationship in Genesis 2 is between man and woman and, and the picture of marriage, it's not because marriage is the only relationship to long for. It's definitely not because marriage is necessary for human relational fulfillment. It's because marriage itself is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, between the Lord Jesus and us. Having brought us back into relationship with God through dying for us on the cross, the Lord Jesus will one day come as a bridegroom for us, his bride. will sing a song better than that of Adam over us and we will live with him in the ultimate relationship in a perfect, sinless, new creation. If you're in Christ tonight, then we've seen a glimpse of Genesis 2. But that should give you a hope for a Revelation 21. Genesis 2 should help us rethink our relationship to creation. And it should help us shift our view on marriage. But first and foremost, it should remind us that Christ died to bring us back into relationship with God. And that our relationship with him our bridegroom will far surpass even the very best aspects of any relationship we have here on earth for all eternity. Let's take a couple of minutes before I pray just to think back through, maybe look back through Genesis 2. See see some of the places where God is speaking to you and talk to him and thank him. Father, there is so much truth in Genesis 2. It is so foundational. Father, all of those areas that have been missed and have been skirted over this evening, Father, I ask that you would impress upon each of our hearts what it is that you would have your word say to us. Father, as we reflect on our relationship with creation, as we reflect on our relationship between man and woman, we know that we are so far away from your standards. We're so far away from Genesis 2. We know too that our relationship with you was not a relationship. It was, it was broken. But we thank you that through your son, you have brought us back into relationship with you. Father, I pray that as we turn to your table now, we would thank you for that. We would rejoice yet again. And that as we look at Genesis 2, we would have a great hope for the future that we have waiting for us, a world of perfect relationships, and new creation, and where the ultimate relationship of all will be that we dwell with you You are our God and we are your people forever. We long for and await that day in your name, amen.